This is part two then. Establishing the credentials of Jesus. Uh, First of all, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the ancient promises. Look with me. I hope you've got your finger in the page here. The first thing that Mark does is refer to an Old Testament prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, 600 years old. We read it at the start of the service. And Mark basically says this 600-year-old prophecy is fulfilled now. So what, what, what he's basically said, the first thing Mark says is Jesus is the one. The name Christ, you know, is not a surname like Smith or Jones. You don't find Jesus under C in the phone book for Jesus Christ. The, 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 the name Christ is a title. It, it, it's, it's the word that it really means Messiah, God's anointed king. So what Mark is saying is all of those Old Testament promises, all of those Old Testament prophecies that God would send a great king to rescue his people, they're being fulfilled now. This Jesus is the one. Christianity, Christianity is not a radical new thing that is trying to obliterate the past. Actually, it has surprisingly ancient roots. The coming of Jesus is actually the pinnacle of centuries of human longing and groaning and desires and yearning. Mark tells us that a 600-year-old prophecy of Isaiah is referring to the Lord Jesus. But I want you to notice something significant here. Inspired by God, Isaiah foretells that when this great promised king would come, first of all, God would send a messenger to prepare the nation for the coming of this great king. But Mark says in this quotation from Isaiah that this preparing figure will cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That is a word that describes God. In other words, God himself would show up. So straight away here we sense that Jesus is not just a great human, some kind of on a different level, human being, a great leader, a great teacher. This is a claim that Jesus Christ is the Lord. God has come to us as one of us. The great creator has entered his creation. I just want to take a moment with you to think about the word gospel that Mark uses. This version of the NRV here translates it as good news. That's good. But it's hard for us to unpick the word gospel because we're so used to it being a religious word. We have four gospels in the New Testament. When we hear the word gospel, 
it's filled with religious connotation. But it's actually not a religious word at all to begin with. It is a word that simply means good news. Evangel, this is a word that was used sometimes in a political sense in, in ancient empires. Um, we, we have inscriptions, actually, that refer to the birth of Augustus Caesar, Roman emperor. And it talks about it being proclaimed Evangel, this is good news. This is a word that would describe something that wasn't just day-to-day news. This is news that is history-making, life-changing, like a great battle has been won or a new emperor has been born. I'm mindful of one of those old town criers. What age were they in? Medieval times? I don't know. Like they would wear red and have a bell and they'd stand in the town square. Oh, yay, oh, yay. And they would announce things. They, they would proclaim things. This is what Mark is referring to when he says, this is the beginning. Of, this is Mark saying, oh, yay, oh, yay. He's announcing something. He's proclaiming something. A new thing has happened. A great king has been born. Everything is different now. You'll know the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1 with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mark's gospel begins with him saying, in this new beginning, God is recreating. Let me just press this in a little. I love Tim Keller's insight into this idea. Here is the great difference between all the other religions of the world and and even secular or non-religious ideologies because all the other religions in the world and all the other secular ideologies, they, they will give you advice. Christianity stands alone in giving you news. Every other ideology is constantly telling you, this is how you should live. Here's the advice you need to have a good, successful life. Christianity stands alone as the one faith that simply blows a trumpet and announces something. The reason the Gospels are called Gospels is not because they're telling us to make something happen, but because they are an announcement that something has already happened. If you see Christianity as advice, you will either think you can follow it and it it might make you smug or you might run the other way because you haven't followed it. But friends, if Christianity is news, if God has come to rescue his people and this is a message to ring out, That changes everything, doesn't it? 
This is therefore not something to do, but something to hear and believe and receive and embrace. Here is a Messiah King who has come to identify with and represent and fight for his people. Here is a king who has come to live the righteous life that we don't and who has ultimately come to die the death that we deserve. And he comes in order that we can be united to him by faith. He takes all of our failure and he gives all of his goodness to us. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the ancient promises. Secondly, Jesus is the subject of all the best preaching. And so, in fulfillment of Isaiah's ancient prophecy, John, the Baptist, appeared in the wilderness, in the desert, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. For Jesus, there was no press release, no fanfare. John the Baptist, sent by God to prepare a nation and ultimately a world for the coming of the king. And he did it by preaching. We should note that Jesus himself held John in the greatest, highest esteem. Sometimes you have competitions, don't you, to try and identify the greatest human. I don't know. There's a program starting on BBC Two this week, Tuesday night, nine o'clock on BBC Two. It's called Icons. Rob and I were sat on the sofa the other day watching TV and an advert came on for this and I heard Rob groan and I said to him, what's the matter? And he said, how do they do that? It's so hard, isn't it, to compare different fields of human and how can you say that one thing is greater than another? So he had a little rant for five minutes and I, I kind of got his point. How, how can you? But on one occasion, Jesus said this about John to those who are listening, I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. What a, what a thing for Jesus to say. He, he is the greatest human being to have been born. As a preacher, John the Baptist was utterly magnetic. One commentator estimates that over 300,000 people went out from the towns and cities of Judea into the desert to hear this man preach. He didn't care what people thought of him. He was not the kind of preacher who just told people what they wanted to hear to make them feel better. He told people the truth. He called them to repent. He was like a human blowtorch, <sighs> he, searing into people's consciences, calling them to be serious about 
believing in and loving and following God. And even though John did become a kind of celebrity figure, he he was the humblest man you could imagine. Despite the crowds flocking to hear him, he was completely unaffected. His whole message was never designed to draw attention to himself, but to signpost people to Jesus. His one passion in life was to do the job that God had given him to do, to be a herald of good news. He wasn't in it for the money or the prestige or the platform it gave him. His only aim was to prepare people for and to point people to and to roll the red carpet out for Jesus. Look at his words in verse 7 here. This was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. But he, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit with courage, passion, humility, and clarity. He prepared the way for Jesus. And his incredible ministry was crowned by Jesus himself coming to be baptized by him. Friends, I really hope that the preaching in our church has something of these qualities in it. Whatever else we are, I hope our preaching points people to Jesus. And I hope that as you come here, you value it and listen to it and count it as precious. I hope the preaching here brings hope and healing and faith and obedience because Jesus is the great subject of it. He is the news. Not merely the advice. He is the news that we proclaim. Thirdly, Jesus is the delight of the greatest father So, the public ministry of Jesus begins. Jesus, aged about 30, travels from Nazareth in the north, and he makes the journey down to the Judean desert to be baptized by John in the River Jordan. I want you to see, first of all, the complete identification that Jesus makes with the people he came to. Remember here, let's look at what it says again at the end of verse 5. Well, verse 5 says the whole Judean countryside, hundreds of thousands of people, all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. What an amazing thing that must have been. But here's the thing, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the River Jordan. A couple of years ago, I went to the River Jordan 
and people were there being baptized. Here, Jesus gets in line, in the queue. These are people who are not showing off how good they are. These are people who have come to confess their sins and to get serious about following God. And Jesus gets in line. John White was a Christian psychiatrist and author. And in one book, he tells the story of how during his medical training, when he was a medical student as a young man, he had to have a meeting with a senior medic who was some kind of consultant in a clinic that specialised in sexually transmitted diseases. And so John White turns up to meet this guy and he goes up to reception and the reception says to him, the receptionist says to him, take a seat. And John White recounts his embarrassment at having to sit in the waiting room. He said, I, I really wished I'd had a sign to say, I'm here on business, I'm not here as a patient. Here we see the Lord Jesus is not the kind of king who is too proud to identify with his sinful subjects. There's no sign. <laughs> he is one of them. The pure and holy and righteous king who has come to rescue his people. He is, he, he's one of them. Jesus is the friend of every single sinner seeking God in that line. He, he is the friend of every sinner who is seeking God. But what happens next is truly stunning. For a moment, it seems that Jesus sees something of ultimate reality here. I don't even know what this verse means. Mark tells us in verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven being torn open. I, I take it that what Jesus didn't see with a pair of binoculars was a little door in the sky in the distance ajar. Somehow, in this moment, it seems that Jesus inhabits the spiritual dimension behind this physical world. It's almost as if the curtain is drawn apart and Jesus sees things as they really are. And in that moment, the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Right at the start here of his public ministry, it's made clear to us, to these readers, it's made clear to everyone that everything Jesus will do will be done in the power of and with the help of the Spirit of God. Jesus will be an obedient, spirit-filled individual. 
I came across a great passage in a book by John Piper called Christ's Combat. Let, let me read to you this quote. When Jesus was baptized, along with all the repenting people who wanted to be on God's side, it was as though the commander-in-chief had come to the front line, fastened on his bayonet, strapped on his helmet, and jumped into the trench along with the rest of us. And when he did that, his Father in heaven, who had sent him for this very combat, signified with the appearance of a dove that the Holy Spirit would be with him in the battles to come. And then we come to what I think is one of the most important verses in the whole of the Bible. I'm glad you're here today. Fancy being here when we're looking at one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Jesus hears the voice of his Father speaking words of reassurance and delight. Verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Right there, in that one phrase, are all the relational goals we have as human beings. Jesus belongs. You are my son. Our lives are aimless and rootless and restless unless we know we belong to someone. Isn't that true? Jesus is loved. Whom I love. We long to belong to someone who loves us. Do we not? And Jesus is delighted in we long to belong to someone who loves us and is proud of us, who appreciates us, who values us. Jesus is delighted in. There's so much here to unpack, but let me just highlight one big idea that I think we all desire deep down, and it's, it's the thought of unselfish love. Here's the mystery of, of the God who is a trinity. It's hard for us to get our heads around. This is a mystery that is fundamentally it's, it's a mystery. We, 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 we struggle to grasp this. In this one verse, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all independently present. 
But we're not talking here about three gods. There is one God, and we're not talking about these three being different faces of the same God. We're, we're talking here about one God who exists in three distinct persons. So, at the heart of everything, the very foundation of the universe is unselfish loving. I, I, I think we're so used to living as if everything should revolve around us that this, it's hard for us to conceive of any kind of relationship where each person lives to adore and serve the other. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit find each other beautiful, desirable, and they're, they're, it's as if they kind of revolve around each other rather than expecting the others to revolve around them. They love and adore each other, not because they have to. They, they don't love each other because they want to get something that they need. Their relationship is not self-centered or exploitative. This, this is pure outward-looking delight. And this means, friends, that this God is infinitely and gloriously and eternally happy. There was never a time when this God was bored or lonely. There's never been a time when he was still in the sense of being stagnant or stale. This is a God who is alive and always on the move. I, I, this is not theology. I want to say this is a God who is colourful and vibrant and creative and expansive and joyful. This is a God who is excited and happy. And isn't it true, in contrast, that self-centeredness, it's always shrinking things. Self-centeredness self shrivels our hearts. It, it shrinks our horizons. It brings things to a standstill. The simple fact that God is love has so many implications. For one thing, love is not a biological chemical reaction that has evolved over billions of years. For another thing, there was never a time and never will be a time when love did not or will not exist. And for another thing, <laughs> I'll give you... I'll just give you three. For another thing, it also means that God did not create stuff and people like us because he was bored or lonely or needy in some way. 
Why would God create people to give him love and admiration when he already has that to the max? God doesn't need us to prop him up because he's fragile. This God didn't create to get something. This is a God who creates because he overflows in giving, sharing, spreading, expanding his love and joy. Think for a moment what this means about the identity of Jesus. This is just a star. We've got 16 weeks of this. This, Think what this means for the identity of Jesus. There's an echo here of another ancient prophecy from Isaiah where God speaks of his son Jesus. You don't need to turn to it. Here is my, this is God speaking about Jesus 600 years before he was born. Here is my servant. In the old King James Version, it says, Behold my servant. I love that. Take a look at that. Behold my servant. Whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Listen, whatever this world thinks of Jesus, he is the apple of his father's eye. The greatest father has sent the son he loves and delights in. The one who he overflows with pride about in a good way. You can never be neutral about Jesus. Do not let me ever hear you say, what a nice man Jesus was. What a nice man Jesus was. There's a warning here. There is a big warning here that if you neglect or ignore or fail to embrace him, you will incur his father's displeasure. What you do with Jesus here, now, today, every day, what you do with him matters more than anything else you do. Do you you, you understand that? Do you realize that? He is the apple of his father's eye. You're my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Oh man, I'm getting carried away. Number four, Jesus is the conqueror of the deadliest evil. We'll be briefer with this. Here is the first seismic shock in Mark's gospel. Here is the first hint of irony and paradox What we have just witnessed is a spectacular relationship, isn't it? And now we're plunged immediately into the most desperate, darkest threat. You could easily skip over verse 12. 
At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. I, I want to suggest to you that Jesus is riding some kind of roller coaster here, isn't he? Apparently, actors and actresses say that the loneliest moment of their lives comes after the encores when they've gone back to their dressing room and they sat all alone in the dressing room after a performance. That loneliness pales in comparison to this come down from high to low that Jesus experiences here, doesn't it? One writer says Jesus has experienced the instant plunge from the shining glory of the presence of God at the baptism into the dark night of the soul when he suddenly finds himself all alone in the desert. There's no continuing celebration. There's no reception with canopies. Jesus is led by the Spirit into a fight. And led by and obedient to the Spirit, for 40 days Jesus is alone in the heat of the day and the cold of the night, fasting, hungry, tired, surrounded by the wild animals of the desert wastes. Is that a nod to those early believers who are facing wild animals? A long time ago, in a garden, evil first polluted God's good world. And our first parents were tempted by a monster to stop looking outwards and to start looking inwards. To stop orbiting around God and each other and to try and make everything revolve around them. And here now is the Messiah King, foretold by the prophets, preached and introduced by John, loved and delighted in by the Father, going into battle against the same monster, not this time in a lovely garden, but in a lonely desert. If he loses this fight, all is lost. We're lost. And for 40 days he faces the tempter and where we humans always fail, he never succumbed. He resisted and he conquered. He does battle with Satan on Satan's home territory. This is God invading evil and winning. And I, I have to tell you this week, this moved me deeply. Because here, here is God's beloved son the one who from ancient ages has participated 
in what some writers call this dance of unselfish love. And yet here he experiences the agony and the desperation, the loneliness of a battle. Let, this is what came home to me this week. Let me say to you, let me say to you, if you are a Christian and you are struggling, do not ever forget that Jesus knows what you're going through. Sometimes in this broken world, your life as a Christian believer will be a messy mixture of ultimate love and desperate battle. He has been there and overcome. Cling to him. Follow him. But you know, don't you, that this is just round one of this great battle. This sets the the scene again for the whole book. What these early verses are hinting at is the greater battle that is yet to come. The king and his cross. He wins round one by resisting. But later, this king will go to a cross where all the selfishness and sin of the world will be laid on his innocent shoulders and he will bear it all and he will breathe his last so that he can invite sinners like us into the loving arms of God. He is our champion. He is our king. He is our savior. He comes to fight for us and he wins for us. And here's the thing. Because he won, when you or I are in our desert, when you or I feel vulnerable, tempted, weak, helpless. At that very moment, you can hear deep down in the very depths of your soul the words of a father saying to you, you are my child who I love and in you is all my delight. Do you think Mark has done a good job? and establishing the credentials of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of every ancient promise. He's the subject of all the best preaching. He's good news, not merely advice. He's the delight of the greatest father, and he's the conqueror of the deadliest evil. As we close said there was a third thing responding to the invitation of Jesus in verse 14 Mark tells us that after John was put in prison Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God the time has come the kingdom of God is near repent and believe the good news what I really love about these early verses even in Mark chapter 1 are the references to the authority of of Jesus here is the supreme Lord he has the authority to do whatever he likes no one can stop him 
but he doesn't use his authority to crush or exploit or oppress people. He uses it to draw people into his love. So Jesus is not one option among many. He is the Lord who calls to you, follow me. He offers himself to you if you'll have him. And there's a good example of it here. As he calls Simon, Peter, and his brother Andrew, follow me. Immediately they left their nets. And then he calls James and John, and they too left not just their nets, but their dad as well. The call of Jesus is always disruptive. He calls us to center our lives around him. He calls us to put him first before family, before friends, before careers, before everything. Jesus will never be a stepping stone to help you get what you really want. Jesus has to be all. It must have felt dislocating for these men. They didn't really know where they were going. It's almost as if Jesus puts a blank contract in front of them and says, sign here at the bottom, we'll fill in the details later. Follow me. The strange thing is that it doesn't shrink their horizons. It expands them. If you look at verse 17, these guys are fishermen and Jesus says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, your world will not get smaller when you embrace Jesus. It'll get bigger. One of the effects of our human self-centeredness, I think, is that it can make us cynical and, and unable to trust others. But one person that you and I can trust is the Lord Jesus. He, he calls you to turn from yourself and to orbit your life around his life. Maybe for you, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Hear his call. Repent and believe the good news and follow him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this part of your word. We thank you that it is powerful, simple, clear, blunt. We thank you that it points us to the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that he is the apple of your eye. We thank you that you love him, delight in him. But we thank you that you've sent him, sent him to us. Father, help us to delight in him like you do. Help us to embrace him, to believe in him, to receive him, to follow him. Father, would you heal us of the monstrous self-centeredness that plagues us? 
And would you help us to be more like your beautiful son, the Lord Jesus. We pray that it would be so in his precious name. Amen.